just by way of reminder, we've talked about this for a few weeks in a row now, and I'm sure we're all well aware that we're going to be joining Grace Church in two weeks. So obviously we're here today, we'll be here next week, and then the following week we will be at Grace Church, December 3rd. That'll be our first week over there. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. Allow me to pray for our time. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the great love with which we have been loved by you. Thank you that we are accepted in Christ. Thank you that we have access to you. We are encouraged to come into the throne room of grace and to come with confidence. And so, Father, even now we approach you with joy, with gratitude, with desperate hearts. We humble ourselves before you. We acknowledge that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can have no lasting fruit. Um, And so we need you every moment, every day. Apart from you, we are certain to fall, to fail. Uh, But thank you, Lord, that we are saved by your grace. We are kept by your grace. And we worship you. We give you the praise and the glory and the honor that you deserve. And we ask now as we open your word that you would please speak to our hearts. That you would minister to us. There are many people with various needs, Lord, and your word is sufficient to speak to every need in this room. And so we thank you for that confidence that we have and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we have been working our way through 2 Timothy for the last several weeks, but we have two weeks left, and I was just really thinking through what do I want to share on these last two weeks, and you know, would Second Timothy three and four, you know, how, how would that flow and fit into this? And really, what was on my heart is I wanted to talk about the love of God and the grace of God, Amen. The love of God and the grace of God, and so that's what we're going to do. And so today. We're going to be talking about God's love. We're going to look at the classic love passage in 1 John chapter 4. And next week, we're going to be looking at the grace of God, probably in Romans. And so today, we're going to think deeply about God's love. We're going to talk about the magnitude of God's love and the implications for our lives because God's love should affect us deeply. It affects the way that we view God, the way that we view each other, the way that we live this Christian life. And so it's so incredibly important that we understand God's love aright. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, opens with this statement. It says, what comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It is the most important thing, what we think about God. We all have some kind of a thought or I don't necessarily want to say an image, but some perception on how we perceive God, what we perceive him to be like. And I think sometimes our perception may be more biblically informed than others, but this is critical, absolutely critical. Tozer goes on to argue that if we have a high view of God, then our worship will be deep and reverent. Conversely, if we have a low view of God, our worship will be shallow and superficial. So high view of God, if we understand that God is holy, that God is eternal, that God is infinite, that God is 
sovereign, that God is altogether good, that He knows all things, and that He is in control of all things, we will worship Him. But if we think that God exists for us, that He's here to do our will and to do our bidding, and He is compartmentalized, and He just stays in His little area, and when we need Him, we'll go to Him, and otherwise we've got this, uh, that's all bad. Would you agree? Can I get an amen? That's not good. We want to have a right understanding of God. We want to have a deep understanding of God, a high view of God. Well, I believe that this same logic is applicable to our understanding of God's love. In fact, when I first read this statement, that was where my mind went. That was the correlation that my mind immediately made. Do I understand God's love aright? And how is that affecting the way that I approach or interact with God and how I live my life? I don't know why, but at times I have struggled with living my life and the reality of God's amazing love for me. And maybe you can relate with that. Maybe some of us are just wired that way. But more often than not, throughout the years, I, have, uh, I would tend to entertain this view that God is displeased with me and on the brink of acting upon that displeasure. <laughs> you know, that, that's just, even though I know better than that, some reason I just, you just kind of, I don't know if people, if certain people are more prone to anxiety, you just kind of have that sense of impending doom. Uh, maybe if you've lived your life in such a way that you've just always you are the problem, and you're causing problems everywhere you go, and then Christ changes you radically, but you still have this sense of the other shoe is going to drop because that's just the way that it has always been. Maybe we tend to see God through that lens, and that is not good. That is all bad, all bad. And so I was struck by my own misconceptions of God and the implications that that had upon my worship for Him. And so we must understand God's love properly as revealed in the Bible. We have to make every effort to receive and believe the love of God for us by faith. We cannot worship God properly or live the Christian life joyfully otherwise. Amen? So love must be the ultimate motivation for everything. Love must be the ultimate motivation for our worship for our service to God and to others, and for our obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commands. Now, I've always loved this verse in Philemon. Paul is encouraging Philemon to receive Onesimus back and to forgive him. And Paul says this in verse 8 of Philemon 1. He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul, as an apostle, had the ability and the right to command and demand that Philemon do what's expected of him, but he didn't do that. He said, rather, I am appealing to you for love's sake. I'm asking you to do the right thing because you love God You love me, and ultimately, I hope that you love Onesimus because he's a brother. He's a brother to you now in Christ. So love really is the greatest motivator. You've you guys have heard me talk about this a lot over the years. I have the same anecdotes that I love to tell over and over. So I'll spare you. I'll spare you that. 
But I will just say, fear is not a good motivator. It might initially work. You know, people can be afraid of hell. They can be afraid of the wrath of God, and they should be. And that might, God might use that to draw someone to his saving grace. Uh, but I think we have to grow beyond that. And love has to be that which motivates us and compels us. That's what Paul said. We are constrained. We are compelled by the love of Christ. Amen? I just know that for years, as I have said time and again, I was always afraid of being arrested in my previous life, the life that I lived for many years, and just criminal activity. But that never stopped me from breaking the law. It just didn't. You know, there's always a certain fear of repercussion and consequence, but fear is not enough to stop us, typically. And so love, it has to be love, amen? Always love. And so we want to know the love of God. We want to live our lives with an awareness of God's love. We want to love God back. We want to love God's people. Love, it really is the core of it all. And so uh, with that, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Now, I've this outlined really in four sections, five, I think. And so the first I have titled, Love is a Test of Authenticity. Love is a Test of Authenticity. Are we sincere? Are we genuine? Are we authentic? Love will be the telltale sign of that. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, if you were to read these verses in isolation, you could walk away very confused. Is John saying that anyone who expresses love is automatically born of God? I mean, there's a lot of people in the world that love, okay? There are plenty of people who don't know Christ, who don't profess to know God at all, and they are very loving people, very kind people, very benevolent people. Is that what John is saying here? That if you're a loving person, you're born of God? In the culture in which we live, I mean, there's a lot of people who would probably say such a thing or believe such a thing. They might not say God is love. They might say love is God, that love is God, and that if you are a loving person, then you're good with God. You're born of God. But that's not what he's saying here. This is a test of authenticity for the one who has confessed faith in Jesus Christ. This is not in a vacuum. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 make that crystal clear. John is talking to Christians. He's talking to the church. And basically saying, if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus and a child of God, yet you have no love, there's a real problem there. There is a problem indeed. Genuine love is necessary for the one who claims to be born of God. If you are born of God, what are, we, what are we saying when we use that kind of language? We're children of God. God's children. And there should be some kind of a, a family resemblance. Amen? We should resemble our Father. And Paul says that very thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So as children of God, we want to walk and be imitators of God in love. Now, the statement, God is love, this is a very profound statement indeed. 
John says, God is love. And this kind of brings me to a theological point. Let me give you a, a theological word here. And I, I love this. I love this doctrine. It's the simplicity of God. The simplicity of God. Now, it's a little bit confusing. It is not saying that God is simple. That's not the idea. But what it's basically saying is God, and this is, can be even more confusing, God is not divided up into parts. And what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible says God is love. The Bible says God is holy. The Bible says God is light. Is God one-third holy, one-third light, one-third love? No. What God has, He is completely. All right? What God has, He is completely and perfectly at all times. What do you think God is doing right now? I'll tell you. He is simultaneously exercising all of His attributes. That's what God is doing. God never suspends one of His attributes in order to exercise another. Okay, when, when God exercises wrath, He doesn't for a moment cease being loving. Okay, He is loving and exercises wrath at the same exact time. God never violates one of His attributes in order to exercise another attribute. He is completely consistent with His own character all the time. In fact, all of God's attributes are informed by each other. A.W. Tozer, he says this, again quoting from uh, the knowledge of the holy, he says, from God's other attributes, we may learn much about His love. We can know, for instance, that because God is self-existent, His love had no beginning. Because He is eternal, His love has no end. Because He is infinite, His love has no limit. Because He is holy, His love is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because He is immense, His love is incomprehensibly, incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. God's love is amazing. It's incredible. And it's informed by all of His other attributes. Does that blow your mind just a little bit? I mean, that's deep. And it's incredible. And God's love is deep. And it's incredible. God is love. God is love. John says that love is from God. What does that mean? That means that God does not conform to a standard of love outside of Himself. We don't get to determine what love is, what we think love is, and then somehow think that God needs to meet that standard. But that's exactly what we do. The reality is love is love because God is love, and God has demonstrated to us what love is. We know what love is because of God. Does that make sense? Before there was creation, before there was any created thing, before there was time, God existed in perfect love within His triune being within the Godhead. And then He, in His love and goodness, created a world upon which He would lavish His love and goodness. We're the recipients of that general love and special love through Jesus Christ. And we now know what love is because God has revealed it to us. Amen? God is love. Love is from God. Therefore, if we are not walking in love, we cannot say that we're born of God. We can't. 
Love is the test of knowing God. So my question to us is, are we passing the test? Would someone say of us that we're a loving individual? I'll talk more specifically about practical ways in which we demonstrate love as we kind of get towards the end of this, but we know what it is. We, we all have people in our lives, I hope, that we have people in our lives that when we get around them, they just make us feel good. They're very loving, uniquely so. There's something about them. They're just an encouraging, refreshing person to be around. I remember as a new Christian encountering people like this and thinking, that's what I want to be like. I love that. And that is experiencing the love of God through His people. It is a blessing. It is refreshing. And that must be. If we claim to be children of God, then we have to have God's love. We have to be sharing it, demonstrating it. And that leads us to the second point here. And that is, God's love is demonstrated. It's to be demonstrated. God has demonstrated it to us, and we are to demonstrate God's love to one another. And so as we look at verses 9 through 12, under this header, God's love is to be demonstrated, we really see two things. God's love demonstrated in the giving of His Son, and then our love demonstrated towards one another. And so look with me at verse 9. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the depth of which God has demonstrated His love is laid out in these two verses here. First, he says, God sent His only Son into the world. This speaks of the personal cost of love. God's love came at a cost to Himself. And it is a massive cost. It was the giving of His only Son, the Son with whom He is well pleased and has been from all of eternity past. He is giving that Son to a bunch of God-hating rebels who would reject God and ultimately crucify His Son, spurning God's gift and God's love. That's pretty amazing. That's love. That's God's love. It came at a personal cost. And you know what? Sometimes love comes at a personal cost to us to express it, to demonstrate it. Sometimes we're afraid to give love because we're afraid of how someone might respond or they might reject us. But that just, it's a cost we have to be willing to pay. We may not want to love somebody because how they have hurt us in the past, and it's a painful thing to even consider, but love comes at a personal cost. It did to our Father, and so it, sometimes it must for us as well. Notice that God did this, sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him, verse 9 says. So it's an others-oriented love. It's what's good for others. That's what God was doing. God sent His Son into the world that we might live through Him. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2 when he says that you know, we are to look out for the interest of others and not our own merely, but to count others as more significant than ourselves. And then Paul talks about Jesus as the greatest example of this reality, who was in heavenly glory with the Father, but didn't cling to that, but set it aside and came to the earth and took the form of a slave, a bondservant, 
suffered horribly even to the point of death on the cross, and then God exalted him. But Jesus did that for us. It was others-oriented. It was for the good of others. And so that is God's love, looking out for the good of others. Notice that God loved us before we loved Him. Obviously, John says that, not that we loved God, verse 9, but that God loved us. This is an initiating love. God initiated the whole thing. Before we ever loved God, Paul says in Romans 5, God demonstrated His love towards us while we were yet sinners. We weren't seeking God, pursuing God, living for God. Exactly the opposite. To the contrary. But God sought us out. Amen? God's love is a pursuing love. It's an initiating love. That's the kind of love that we ought to be walking in. God has pursued us. We should be pursuing others. We should be those who are willing to initiate. We're not just sitting around waiting on other people to take the first step and love us. If someone loves me, then I'll love them back. No, we've been loved. We've been loved. So we need to do the same. And then notice, God sent His Son as a propitiation. As a propitiation. Now, that's a big Bible word, but it simply means satisfaction. Jesus satisfied the penalty that was due for us. We owed a debt that we could not pay. We had God's righteous anger and wrath upon us. Jesus satisfied. Jesus paid the debt so that God's wrath has been appeased. God's wrath has been satisfied. We've been reconciled to God. That's what the word propitiation means. Jesus did that for us. So what did He do? He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what He did. When He propitiated for us, we cannot propitiate for ourselves. That's why hell is an eternal place. Because God is infinitely holy. And I don't even have time to get into that right now. But He's infinitely holy. We're finite creatures. We would have to spend all of eternity trying to satisfy a debt against an infinitely holy God that we've offended and transgressed a trillion times over in a week. Right? And so... Jesus, who is of infinite worth and value as the Son of God, gave His life as a satisfaction to God's righteous requirements and God's wrath. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's the good news of the Gospel. Amen? The good news of the Gospel. So that we just believe, we trust, we repent, we turn. That's, that's what is expected of us. But... Um, the lesson for here, for us, is if Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, then we have no excuse not to love the unlovable. We have no excuse. We have been forgiven a debt that we can never repay. We can't turn around and expect somebody else to pay a debt. Right? We can't do that. Uh, we can't say, I've been forgiven, but I can't forgive you. I've been forgiven, I've been loved, but I cannot love you. We can't expect people to jump through hoops and earn our love. Freely we have received, freely we give. Amen? That's the kind of love that has been demonstrated. And so then, it follows that we're to demonstrate that love towards others. That's the second part of point two. And so look with me at verse 11. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. So in light of John's description of God's love, he says we're without excuse. If we've received so great a love, we have no excuse but to share it with others. And God's, uh, John says that if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I just want to draw your attention to that phrase, one another. It's a significant phrase. It's found a hundred times in the New Testament, about 50 times it refers to how Christians are to conduct themselves with one another. And it's used in a variety of ways. Pray for one another, serve one another, love one another, confess our sins to one another, forgive one another. On and on and on it goes. It really lays out for us what Christian community ought to look like. And above all, we are to love one another. If we have been loved by God, let us love one another. I mean, that was our Lord's command. John 13, 36, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Amen? And so we must love. Now, this is interesting. I'll, I really love how John puts this. He says, look, no one's ever seen God. We have not seen God. The Bible says that God is spirit. God is invisible. The Bible says that no one has seen the Father except Jesus. Jesus has made him known to us, 1 John, or John chapter 1. But John here is saying that no one has ever seen God. So how can you know that you know him? What is the evidence? What is the manifestation of the fact that we know this invisible God? It's love. Love is the manifestation. That is the proof. And I think this is kind of in line with what it says over in John chapter 3, verse 8, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he tells him he must be born again, and Nicodemus is just baffled by that. He doesn't understand what does that mean, how does that work. And then Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, there's, I think, a number of things going on in that verse right there, but there's really just one thing I want to take away from that. He says, it's like the wind. You can't see it, but you can see its effects. You can see the leaves moving across the ground. You can feel it across your skin. You can see the trees swaying in the wind, right? but you can't see the wind. Well, in the same way, we can't see God, but we can certainly experience and know His love, and it transforms us, it makes us alive, it empowers us in every way to love others, even to love our enemies, to love those who have hurt us and wronged us, to love those who will reject us. See, that is an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing. That is the love of God. And that is the demonstration, that is the visible, tangible manifestation of the fact that we know, we really know God. Holy, eternal, infinite, loving God. God our Father. So, now John begins to talk a little bit about assurance. How can we know that we know this God? He continues to kind of drive this home. How can we be sure that we are in God's love? What is our assurance that we're abiding in God? 
And he really gives us three things here in verses 13 to 16. And the first thing is God's Spirit. God's Spirit. We have confidence that these things are true for us because God gives us His Spirit. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit is one of the greatest assurances that the believer has. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. So the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. That is the down payment. That's what the word means. God has made certain promises to us, and He says, I'm going to show you that I mean business. I'm going to make good on my promise, and here's my guarantee. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. My Holy Spirit is going to indwell you, and you're going to be sealed until the day of redemption. It's a, it's a down payment. That's literally what the word means. That is the guarantee that God has given us. That is the assurance that we have. The Holy Spirit is the source of God's love and the power in our lives. Romans 5.5, 5, Paul says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's our assurance. There is our guarantee. There is our hope. We have been sealed with God's Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured out into our hearts by His Holy Spirit. Amen? Do you have the Holy Spirit of God? Do you have that assurance? Have you been born again? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit operating in your lives? Are you operating in the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you to serve the body of Christ? Are you convicted of sin? That comes from the Holy Spirit. Are you discerning when you hear things that just don't line up with the Word of God? That's the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit working in your lives? He must be. That is, one of, that is the assurance. One of the ways in which we can be sure that we abide in God and have God's love. Because what is the first fruit of the Spirit? Come on now. What is the first fruit of the Spirit? What is the first fruit of the Spirit? Okay, I mean, geez, Louis, love, love. Y'all are starting to scare me a little bit. All right. The next thing, confession. Our confession. That also is a point of assurance. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. Confession is important to God. Confession that springs from the heart, that is. It's not enough to just say things with our mouths. It's not enough to just mumble some words. We can say the right things and not be right. I mean, Jesus said... To the Pharisees, well did Isaiah speak of you when he said that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But you know what? Confession, nonetheless, is important. If our heart is right before God, confession matters. What does confession mean? Well, confession simply means to agree with God. So when it says confess our sins, it doesn't necessarily mean recount every sin you've ever committed. The idea is confess 
that God is true in His assessment and appraisal of me. I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I fall short of the glory of God. Confessing Jesus is to agree that He is who He says He is, that He has done what He said He did, and that He will do what He said He will do. And what He says about me is true, that if I am in Christ, I am a new creation. I am born again. All right, so that's confession, and confession is important. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 says, Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So confession, sealed by the Spirit, confessing our faith boldly. We're not ashamed. We're not embarrassed. We've been forgiven far too much. We've been saved from too, too, uh, too deep of a ditch, of a pit we have been rescued out of to be ashamed. Amen? John gives one more assurance. This may be obvious, but it is powerful. And that is trusting. Trusting in love. Trusting and abiding in love. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. John says that we have come to know. We have come to know God's love. We've experienced it. It's changed our lives. Have you come to know God's love personally, experientially, relationally? Do you know God's love like that? John says they have. And then notice this. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That's faith. That's trust. Do you believe the love that God has for you? I love that little, it's easy to pass over, but he says, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. <coughs> faith, trust. Look, we are saved by faith. I know I've already said amen like 20 times. I'm on a roll. Amen? I mean, we are saved by faith. But you know what my assurance is today of my salvation? I'm still walking in faith. I am still trusting the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's still the basis of my assurance. We can't necessarily look at our performance because we have good days, bad days, good weeks, bad weeks, good years, bad years. And depending on how we're feeling and depending on how we're performing, maybe we don't have the confidence that we ought to have. Our assurance lies in our trust and our faith. I know the love that God has for me, and I'm believing in that love even now. I still trust that love. Amen? That's, that's our assurance. It has to be. It has to be. Do you believe the love that God has for you? I think this is one of the ways in which we, one of the ways in which we reproach God when we fail to believe God's love for us when we fail to believe God's great love for us, when God has demonstrated so great a love, and we think, well, I'm just too much of a sinner. I've sinned too many times. I have out the cross. Right? 
Um, somehow we think that God's love is not great enough to overcome our own sin and shortcomings. That's blasphemy. May it never be. We have to know and believe the love that God has for us because He's demonstrated it. All right, next. Point number four. The freedom found in God's love. There's freedom in God's love. Freedom from judgment and freedom from fear. Look at verse 17. By this is the love, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I don't know about you, but my love is just perfect. How about yours? I mean, I'm just perfected in love. No, I mean, we look at that and we think, what is going on here? Uh, who can rightly say we have been perfected in love or love is perfected in us? What he's simply saying here, the word for perfect, it means ma mature, complete, a mature kind of love. That's the goal. That's the aim. We want to grow in our love for God, our understanding of God's love, such that our love is mature. And when difficulty comes and hardships come and it seems like God is far away, we know better than that. We know God's love. We believe God's love. We've experienced it too many times to doubt God's love. That's a mature love. And that's what John is talking about here. And he says that kind of love, it casts out fear. It's, it casts out all of those things that are antithetical to or contrary to it. Now, what is this? Because as he is, so also are we in the world. I, I, was, I always wonder, what does that mean? And so, uh, one Bible commentator says this, Jesus was God's Son in whom he was well pleased on earth. We also are God's children and the objects of his gracious goodness. If Jesus called God Father, so may we, since we are accepted in the Beloved. In verse 18, the same truth is stated negatively. The love that builds confidence also banishes fear. We love God and reverence Him, but we do not love God and come to Him in love and at the same time hide from Him in terror. Fear involves torment and punishment, a reality the sons of God will never experience because they're forgiven. Sons, daughters, children, we don't experience that. There's no fear of punishment, no fear of torment. Amen? Perfect love has come. We've received of it. Now, R.C. Sproul, he wrote a little article on this, uh, on these verses that we're looking at, and he used the life of Martin Luther. We should know who Martin Luther is. He was originally a Catholic monk. He was born in 1483, died in 1546. God used him to uh, really launch the, the great Protestant Reformation. We are Protestants. And so, um, but Martin Luther was training for ministry to serve God before he even knew God. He, I don't think he knew that he didn't know God, but he later come to realize he didn't. And so R.C. Sproul talks about this. He says regarding Martin Luther, his phobias were many and legendary. He had such a fear of the wrath of God that early on in his ministry, somebody asked him this question, Brother Martin, do you love God? 
Do you love him? And this was his response, Martin Luther, love God? You ask me if I love God, sometimes I hate God. I see Christ as a consuming judge who is simply looking at me to evaluate me and to visit affliction upon me. Yikes. He says, imagine a young man preparing for ministry declaring that he goes through periods of hating God. Luther's hatred was inseparably related to this paralyzing fear which he expressed that he had about God. I would submit to you that a lot of people are trapped in that place. Sproul goes on to say that the scriptural response to this is found in 1 John 4.18, where we are at right now. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We are not paralyzed by the torment of fear, because we are the recipients of perfect love. And for that reason, we reciprocate love to the one who loved us first. That's the proper balance. Well, later on in Luther's life, he came to a place of radical conversion. Reading the Word of God, he was convinced that justification comes through faith in God, faith in the gospel. And he was radically changed and transformed. And then he says this, While I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a tyrant. But when I knew Him to be my Father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against Him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. You see how that transformed somebody? When he was afraid of God, when he lived in dread and torment, he said, God to me was a taskmaster, harsh. Christ was just looking for an opportunity to crush me. Sin was easy for me. But when I come to realize that God was a loving and good and gracious and kind Father, I grieved to my core that I could have ever rebelled against Him. Well, it brings me to our, our last point here, and that is the expectation to share the love of God. The expectation to share it. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John emphasizes yet again that God is the initiator of love. I mean, we could do a sermon on that one little verse right there. We love because he first loved us. Very profound. We love because he first loved us. It is because he loved us that we are able to love. That's the idea here. It's, I heard a pastor talking about this not long ago. He said that as he was growing up, he would hear that verse, and it always troubled him because he thought that was a weird rationale. Like if you, go, if you hit your brother, you know, and then your mom says, you know, why'd you do that? He hit me first. It's almost like that, you know. So it's a low 
rationale, if you will, but it's not necessarily even just talking about our response. It's talking about our capacity. We did not love God. We could not love God. God loved us. And because He loved us, He changed us. And as a changed, saved, born-again individual with a heart made alive in Christ, we have the capacity to love God. Amen? We love Him because He first loved us. He's the initiator of it. And now that we have this capacity to love, we are expected to share it. We are expected to love others with this love. Now, John states we can't see God. So he's back to this kind of reasoning again that we talked about earlier. He emphasizes this. He says, you cannot see God. So how do you express your love for God? You say you love God. How do you show that? Well, we do that by loving God's people, the people that we can see. All right, You're God's people. You have the Spirit of God in you. Christ is in you, and He is in me. We are the body of Christ. We are the, the hands and the feet, if you will. If you want to experience Christ and His love, there is no place on earth where you will better experience it than in the church with your brothers and sisters. You want a hug from God? Go to church. Get hugged by your brothers and sisters. And so John says, look, if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ whom you can see, how can you be so sure that you know this God that you cannot see? It doesn't make sense. And I've talked about this before, and I've heard people say it. I love God, I just can't stand His people. That, I get it, I get it. And we can laugh at that, and it's, it's cute and all, but, and I know that people have been hurt. We've all, we, we have been hurt, we hurt people. That's just a little thing called life. That happens inside church, outside church. That happens no matter where you go, okay? But if we start somehow thinking that we love God, but we can't stand God's people, something is deadly wrong with that. You can't say that you love God if you don't love God's people. And John makes that crystal clear here. That, again, is the visible demonstration of our love for an invisible God, our love for His people, a God-given love. So how do we demonstrate this love? We'll just close with this right here. How do we demonstrate love for God and love for others? Now, this is obviously not going to be the most comprehensive and profound list that I could possibly give you, but there's just some things maybe to consider and to start with. For one thing, how do we love God? Well, first, we have to receive God's love. We have to trust Him savingly. That's the good starting point right there. Believe the gospel. Believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Be born again. Repent of your sin. Trust Christ. Know God as your heavenly Father, Jesus as your Savior. But then, trust Him daily. Trust Him still. Life is a perpetual, habitual faith step. We have to keep on trusting, keep on believing. Just like I was talking about earlier. And it's easy to not do that. So, if we're not trusting God daily for our provisions and trusting God's promises, we're not loving God as we ought to. And I would say this ties kind of closely with just acknowledging God. Proverbs 3 in all your ways, acknowledge Him. It's very easy to live our lives in such a way that we are just not acknowledging God. We get up, and our day begins, and we're off and we're running. 
and we're making plans, and we're, we're doing things, and we're reactionary, and we're whatever, whatever, but we're not giving much thought to God in the process of all of this. And so trying to be intentional about just considering God. God is the Lord of our lives. Everything that we have, every good gift is from Him. All that we possess belongs to Him. Uh, God is in control, and God has a very real purpose and plan for how He intends to use you for His glory. And so are we taking these kinds of things into consideration? It's loving God when we really make that the aim of our life. Um, pursuing God, again, these overlap, but it's the same is true. Uh, you know, I, I really try to pursue my wife. I, I do. I didn't pursue her to win her, and then now that she's mine by law, she can't go anywhere, so I don't have to, I don't have to pursue her anymore. No. No, no, no. I am still making it my aim to know her and to love her and to honor her and bless her and to just build upon that, right? That's the way it should be. Same with God. Same with God. All the more with God. We want to spend our days growing in our knowledge of this wonderful God who has loved us so. We want to know more about Him. We want to pursue Him. Worshiping Him. Praising Him. Thanking Him. Honoring Him. Blessing Him. That's how we express our love. It's a love that's in our hearts and it should come out of our mouths. It should be expressed with our bodies, right? Worship, praise. As I already said, obedience. This is one of the greatest ways that we show our love for God. Obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And so sometimes obedience can be downright painful. We want what we want. The flesh wants what the flesh wants. And when we deny that, we're saying yes to God. No to sin, yes to God. That pleases God. That is a way that in which we love God. Serving Him, using our God-given gifts for His glory, for His purpose, for His church, for His kingdom. Sharing Him, telling others about Him. That is a way in which we love God. If we love something, we are eager to tell other people about it. If we love someone, we're eager to tell other people about it. How much more with God? So when we tell other people about God, we are loving Him. What about loving others? Loving others. You know what? Taking an interest in others and spending time with them communicates a lot. Just taking an interest in another person's life, asking them questions about themselves, trying to carve out some time to be with them, we're almost done. You guys okay? You hanging in here with me? Some of you are looking like you don't love me very much right now. <laughs> All right. Speaking words of encouragement. Words of encouragement go a long way to express love. And oftentimes when we do that, we don't even realize what God is doing. We don't even realize what God is doing to lift up another person. We're just simply trying to speak words of encouragement. But there have been times where people have encouraged me and they don't know it. They were sent by God. I mean, they, it just, in that moment, I needed that, and they don't even realize just how God blessed me through them. And so just speaking words of encouragement. Sometimes words of correction, rebuke, the Bible's clear on that. That is a way in which we love. We love people by speaking the truth. We got to do it in love. We don't want to come swinging a hammer. It's very, it's a hard line to walk. Sometimes we do speak the truth, but not in love. And that's not loving. 
Um, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend is going to tell you the hard truth, right? And you know how we can express love by receiving correction. That's a hard thing to do. It is a hard thing to do to receive correction. Um, but that is another way in which we love each other. Encouragement, correction, receiving correction, growing closer as a result of it. Looking for opportunities to meet financial and physical needs in other people's lives. God blesses us so that we can bless other people. And you know what this requires? I've said it a bunch of times. I'll say it again. It requires community. It requires that we actually know each other. That we're actually in close enough proximity with each other that we can be aware of needs that people have so that by God's grace we can be used. You know, serving physical needs, whatever the case might be. Um, expressing affection with something as simple as a smile, a smile, a handshake, a hug, a high five, something like that, you know, warmth, embrace, it's a godly thing. And these are ways in which we simply go about loving people, and these things happen in community. They happen in community. Using our God-given gifts, spiritual gifts to serve one another, it happens in community. And so really it just starts with being mindful, being mindful of these things. When you consider all of these things about God, all that we have received in God, the expectation upon us to reciprocate these things to God and to others, and then sitting down and being a little bit strategic about how we're going to do it, uh, taking account, are we doing these things? Are we passing, passing the test? Like I said in the very beginning, how are we doing? You passing the test? Pray, ask God to search your heart and to show you. But God has loved us. May we love Him and may we love each other. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we honor You. We give You glory. We give You praise. You're worthy. We bless Your holy name. We love You. It's an imperfect love. At times, it's a very weak and fragile love. But thank You, Lord, that... Um, you're still pleased. You're blessed. You love us, Lord, and you love to be loved by us. And um, we love to love you, Lord, and, but we want to love you more. We want to know you more. We want to serve you in greater ways, obey you in greater ways, make your love known to others in greater ways. Lord, we want to be propelled by your love, compelled by your love, motivated by your love. We want to live our lives in such a way that we are very much aware that you are rejoicing over us, that we are covered in your perfect love, and that you have paid such a great price through the giving of your Son. What kind of love is this? What an amazing love. Thank you for that, Father, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine down upon you. May he lift up your countenance and give you peace. God bless you guys. Amen.